Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haida Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hi, Claire. How are you today? Oh, very well, thank you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, you know, uh, I used to get nerves about you know about having really really famous guests uh, on the podcast, but I don't have that anymore. You know, because I realised that yeah, we're all the same, really. We're all the same. If you uh, prick us, we will bleed. We're, we're all just exactly the same. And I don't think of myself in any way as high profile, though increasingly I find myself in the public domain and what I say is taken so seriously that I have to be very careful now. And, and I mean, I follow you on Twitter um, and, you know, some of the comments are taken so out of context and you know, are quite uh, vitriolic, really, and and yeah, I don't know why that happens. Well, I've got theories around. I mean, Twitter number one is a place that de facto is easy to be misunderstood and to misunderstand. So it's it's a very strange forum. It gives you the illusion of 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 being together, of closeness. Yet actually, it's not. It's not a space where you can share important issues where you can be nuanced where you can even be sarcastic you have to be absolutely down the line on every single word so it's a place that itself is is difficult to negotiate and then I think there are issues in particular I mean I have to say it around me that people seem to pigeonhole me into a space that and they know nothing about me yet they make comments about me and I often wonder why they do that on the basis of of an avatar and a few words as talking about your profile and and then twitter and social media also exposes some really nasty comments people make these comments sometimes in the dead of night maybe after a bit of alcohol and think there's no repercussions for it well there are repercussions it's deeply hurtful and in a way more so than if people speak speak bad things to you because at least you can come back to them if they talk to you but on social media it's impossible yeah yeah and and i guess um i mean it's good that the regulatory bodies are having you know more of a say into this and you know there are guidelines to this and i think that's a good thing yeah but i again when i was chair of the Royal college of gps there was a whole move to restrict doctors use of social media and i said well that's ridiculous it, it's like restricting the use of a pen you can put guidance and, and around what you write, but you can't about the use of a pen. And I think it's really about people understanding that there is a human being behind the tweet. There is a human being when you write nasty things about somebody, it's not just into the ether and then disappears. It, it's deeply hurtful. So I personally now, I'm restricting my use of social media. I very rarely now look at, at Twitter. I, 
I did for quite a while get a sort of post-traumatic stress disorder type symptoms. I got anxious even to see a, the, the, the icon of the, of the Twitter icon. So, but I won't be frightened away from it, but I am much more cautious now about using it because it, it brings out the worst in people, I think, as well as the best. But it, and it's, it, it's not a space to make, uh, to, to, to make nuanced comments. It's a space maybe to give information or just to make some sort of comment, but not nuanced ones. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult. And, and I, I mean, I personally don't post anything on on Twitter because, I mean, first of all, I'm, you know, very sarcastic and I say some yeah. weird, weird things all the time. Um, and it doesn't make sense for a lot of people. But yeah, very reluctant to write anything on Twitter whatsoever. I mean, I just I just put pictures on because I enjoy mm. putting pictures on. And I always have that kind of slight positive uh, yes. slant to things. Well, that's what I find. That's what I find that I find, to be absolutely honest, please don't take this wrong way, but I find that really boring. I find yeah. it really boring when people tweet, uh, oh, today I went to, a, a, I saw the sunshine and I went to a lovely meeting and saw some lovely people. I think, well, yep, that's, <laughs> but if you try to do the opposite and be slightly provocative, yeah. I, I've twice had a Twitter storm, once very early on, uh, when I was on social media and more recently and it it is not easy to live through a Twitter storm and I will not now risk my mental health by doing it but equally I can't just be somebody that posts you know today the sun is shining and I took my dog for a walk it, it, it's, it's yeah. meaningless what I'd like to do is is debate the debate about why does this happen is there some sort of uh, gender aspect to it are people less tolerant of women and powerful women uh, why are people envious of 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 particular women why are why do people misinterpret what the the issue you know if you put in so i'd far rather have a debate but it's it's impossible it, it is absolutely impossible now even if i did put today is is wednesday somebody would come back and say how dare you it's thursday in australia and you know, you've missed out the whole of the rest of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, for me, I know psychologically speaking, I, you know, it would go down if, if I went down that particular nuance and, and you know, opinionated piece. Um, but yeah, um, I'm definitely boring on Twitter. I find that, um, you know, things like uh, LinkedIn is, yes. is, is much better because you have that sort of, capacity to to write whatever you want and you know make it a, yes. as nuanced as possible but I think you know Twitter is um, a no-go area really it's um, no-go and for me I'm picked up by the mainstream press who mm. then use what I say to run pieces and and again I, it's not worth my psychological health to have to worry about it too much now uh have you got I thicker like skin if, if no, you, of course I, I haven't. I know. I, I often think about what people. I mean, you're you're a psychotherapist as well as a, yeah. a, a surgeon, an ophthalmologist. But there's no such thing unless you're a psychopath of having thick skin. Right. Uh, yeah. All you do is learn how to deal with pain, and the way I deal with it is knowing that time will heal. So it's not mm. that it makes it less painful. You just understand that not to catastrophize that it will heal it's it's only a few people blah 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 yeah. 
so unless you truly are psychopathic and I'm not psychopathic, of course it hurts. And I suspect it hurts me just as much as it hurts other people. It's mm. just that you have to deal with it uh, because you've got to continue with your profile and continue with life. And, and you know, how do you deal with it these days? Um, you know, because the onslaught is is continuous, really. It's continuous. Uh, hence the fact that I did take myself off and then put myself back on again. But now, as I said, it, you also have to realise what's important. Uh, Twitter debates are not important. If you take yourself off social media, any social media, the world doesn't come to an end. Your life doesn't come to an end. Uh, so I think it's about getting priorities right. And, and uh, at this moment in time, my priorities are supporting the Royal College of GPs as the president, making sure that my profession, uh, general practitioners feel that I'm behind them. I understand the pains that they're going through in terms of workload and supporting other doctors in, in, in the work that I do with uh, practitioner health. Well, you've got very broad shoulders. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, and uh, I, I, yes, I have got broad shoulders, but equally, I carry a lot of responsibility with those shoulders. Where, where has that come from? What the carrying a lot of responsibility? Yeah, or the broad shoulders. Well, well both. Yeah. <laughs> well, as somebody probably very similar to me, I wasn't born in this country. I came from immigrant parents who instilled in me that the only way to give back to the country that has basically allowed us to come is to work hard and to get a career and my father used to also tell me you have to be better than everybody else I mean and what he actually meant was that I suspect as a foreign female I had to be better so I worked very hard very very hard and I think I've got a slightly uh, hyperactive mind which means I was never satisfied with just doing one thing. I was always looking to do more and more and more, which means that you tend to do a lot. And, and a lot of the things I did worked out well. So you then get, you then do more and more. So, and the more you do, the more you responsibilities and the more you have to carry that responsibility. So I think it's probably come originally from a, a sense of having, of not feeling that I was as good as everybody else and therefore having to work and to prove myself. I mean, you know, you're sort of up there at the sort of top of the rank. Um, <laughs> you know, do you still have that sense that, oh my God, you know, there, there are other people who are sort of up there and I, I've got to keep climbing? What I'm finding now is this fabulous position of where mainly younger people are approaching me with their ideas and wanting my help, which I give them. And I am just awestruck by this group that's out there that I never knew about. And I don't want to be them. So it's not like I want to be them and, and compete against them, but I just want to help them. And it's trying, so and this has recently changed in terms of my ambition. I'm no longer ambitious in terms of wanting to to do more, though I'm certainly not giving up anything, but it's about exploring areas with others that I would never have thought about. For example, tech, and uh, particular femtech, women's technology and women, either women leading technology or technology addressing women's problems. I would never have expected that I, that would be of interest to me a year ago. 
and now I'm finding myself increasingly talking to people in that space and increasingly being excited about it, but not as somebody that wants to lead it because I, I can't lead it. I'm not experienced enough. I'm too old to learn those new skills, but supporting the next generation in order to, to lead themselves. So that's what I'm excited about at the moment. So in a sense, something's changing you where you're sort of taking a back seat and sort of enjoying the, uh, the scenery. No, I'm not quite enjoying the scene. I'm not, I'm not. I'm still. My diary is completely full. I also run a gambling service, the primary care gambling service, breaking the mold in terms of how gambling addiction services should be run. Forming an intermediate service, which is where I think the health service has never moved on. So an intermediate, generalist-led service that supports GPs, supports the voluntary sector, supports the secondary care service, and sees patients. Uh, who really can be managed within a multidisciplinary generalist format. I also chair a charity, Doctors in Distress, uh, aiming to reduce the rate of suicide amongst all health professionals. So I'm kept very busy in the things that I do. I mean, do they sort of come together, you know, the gambling issue and also, um, you know, uh, the mental health and suicide issue, or are they two they, sort of separate they're, they're, things? No, they're two completely separate things. Yeah. The first time in my life, those there isn't an overlap. It's is gambling issues for the for the general patient population. Mm. Doctors in distress is for health service practitioners, mm. all health service practitioners. But the gambling comes out of a, an interest that I've had with addiction that way, goes way back. In fact, I started my career caring for intravenous drug users, homeless intravenous drug users, and set up a model of care through my practice that was then adopted around shared care. So I've just replicated it with gambling. And it works, uh, but it, it, it's interesting that I have got into gambling because I'd never thought of getting into addiction again, and certainly not behavioural addictions. But it's it's a wonderful space to be. That it, it, wonderful is not for the people who've got a gambling addiction, but it's wonderful in terms of being able to help people, able to find solutions, to be responsive, to support GPs because it's easily referable. They can just tell people to go on the website. The primary care gambling service or just drop us an email through this through the website and we're beginning to show proof of concept that if we provide an easily accessible service patients will come to us and we get them better what are the bi biggest barriers and sort of roadblocks um for patients for, for patients actually it's deep deep shame mm. more so i think than oddly enough than, than the drug users i used to manage this because gambling is so pervasive it's a bit like drinking alcohol most people drink alcohol and most people will have a flutter of some kind or other they may just buy a lottery ticket or they may play bingo once a month so the fact that some people then become addicted is is so shameful because they think well actually why can't I be every, like everybody else? Why can't I just enjoy the odd bet? Because there's nothing wrong with betting or having a gamble. What's the problem is when it trips into being a pervasive issue in your life and you're spending too much money or too much time or when it's causing harm to yourself. But these people, unlike, as I said, intravenous drug users where de facto you're doing something which most people don't do, they feel so shameful that they've, that this, this so-called normal activity is causing them serious problems. So it's actually getting over that, that line. 
There's also the shame in some of the groups that we care for, women, you know, using your, especially in times like now, is cost of living rising, using money that should be spent on caring for your family on actually an addiction, again, is deeply shaming. And instead of putting your hand up and saying, please help, what tends to happen is people further entrench themselves and, and do it secretively. So anybody listening to this, if you've got patients who are uh, problems with gambling, uh, primary care gambling service, just go online and have a little look. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there a sort of a pressure from society as well that this should be, you know, less less talked about and not and not looked into, or is it more of a personal? Well, it's society dynamic. because it's so it's so normalised. If you think mm. about it, I mean, even uh, on the front of buses, the side of buses, mm. adverts for for spread betting, adverts on every time you you watch the a sports program, adverts when during pandemic during, during lockdown many i admit sh deeply embarrassingly occasionally watch daytime tv between zoom meetings the adverts predominantly during daytime tv are, are directed at women and many many of them are around gambling they may not look like they are but they are so bingo for example so it, it, it's so normalized that actually to admit you have a problem is very, very difficult. The same goes with other behavioral addictions like eating. I mean, you know, like obesity, it, it becomes, it, the fact that everybody is doing it makes it harder for you to put your hand up and say, I've got a problem. Yeah, and, and there, there must be a reason why it's sort of women per se, or is that because, you know, you're more sort of inclined to look towards that, well, that, that area of society? Women probably don't have a higher rate of gambling mm. problems uh, than men, but what they have is more secrecy. But that goes for all sorts of issues with women, that there is this fallen angel syndrome mm. where women tend to be looked upon far more harshly than male counterparts. So I remember, for example, when I was really involved in caring for intravenous drug users, that a woman user caught uh, dealing, for example, would get one of two penalties either she would sort of get a very lenient one or she'd be sent to jail whereas a male counterpart tended to have a more of a normal distribution of the penalties and I read about I, I did some work to find out why this was the case and it there is this, this concept called the fallen angel so women should not transgress and or should not in inverted commas and when they do they were punished harshly now you see this played out all over the place. You see it placed, played out. For example, even in women chief executives who maybe their trusts fail, they, they are pilloried. You see it played out in politics for female senior politicians. You see it played out uh, with all sorts of areas where females may make a mistake or transgress. We are treated in a different way to our male counterparts. It's either all or nothing. So and I, going back to the social media discussion, I, again, I think there is a gender issue there. But and it's it's to do with you know I suspect it's to do with the fact that women are our mothers. The first relationship you have is with your mother. The idea that a mother can can do something bad or perceived to do something bad is too painful to think about. So I think it's all caught up in that. Yeah, I mean it's obviously complicated. You know, there's sort of the positive and negative in in both the feminine and the masculine um maybe it's easier to sort of talk about the masculine and it's a bit more taboo to talk about the feminine and and you know 
the mother figure, whether it's the, you know, all wise mother and the devouring mother. So you're um, right. Or the, or the nurturing mother. I mean, again, the mother doesn't all have to be resided in the woman, by the way. I mean, there's yeah, mothering. Yeah. In, but if we take it about as the concept, as I'm talking about, the mother tends to be reside the container effect yeah. of the woman, the container to, to, to make you safe, to keep you safe. To, yeah. And with that comes all sorts of assumptions and, you know, conscious and unconscious. So it, it's a complicated way of saying that it's harder for women to admit if things when things go wrong and they tend to be treated differently in this very bimodal way all or nothing whereas men tend to get a much more even distribution and whilst men struggle also to admit especially admit alcohol dependence it's not as shaming as it is for a woman yeah yeah so so you're born in nigeria do you, yes do you, do you do you remember sort of that that yeah. earlier part no, in your life really i i uh, we came to england when i was nearly four mm. uh, my uh, i i have fleeting memories of of nigeria but not really it's just it's just it was always part of me born in nigeria of maltese parents living in england was my identity because i didn't belong anywhere born on one continent living in another a double immigrant, so an immigrant to Nigeria, essentially, and then an immigrant to this, this country. So it was just always part of me, this, this, uh, this, this, this person that just didn't fit in, people couldn't pigeonhole, which again has carried me through my entire life, that people have assumptions about me, which are so unfounded, because they, but I think it's because they, they struggle to fit me in. They struggle to to, to pigeonhole me. You know, I, I'm 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 nothing and everything. Yeah, yeah. And and when when was the first time did you kind of sort of settle into settle settle into something and say to yourself, oh, I found my place here. Uh, yeah, it's a very good question. I I I was more teased by nationality till I was. 18 and I went traveling when I was 18 around the world just between you know at the end of school and I couldn't get into certain countries because I had a Maltese passport and so I came home and changed it to a British passport so at the age <laughs> of 19 I became British and it was very strange and you weren't allowed dual nationality then but post-Brexit I got back my Maltese nationality so I'm now British and Maltese and I feel both. But the only country, the only place I ever go ever that nobody says, where do you come from is Malta. So it is. So I don't feel I still don't feel I found my true identity. I clearly am British. I love this country. But I when I go into Malta, I I feel I've gone along, but equally, when I first time I ever went back to Africa, and I looked up at the sky, I I, saw, I, I felt this this recognition, and it must be—I mean, those of you will think I'm mad—but it must be a deeply, deeply unconscious recognition of the sky being familiar, and it must have been, I think, a childhood memory of, of when you're lying in your cot looking up at the African sky, because there is nothing like the African sky. Uh, so I don't really belong anywhere, but I think a lot of immigrants feel that, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I have a similar kind of 
feeling when I go back home to Iraq. It's it's yes, this is me. This is my roots. I sort of belong here. And then my kind of uh, cultural indoctrination comes in and says, no, you like fish and chips and you like, yeah, yeah. you know, watching EastEnders. Um, but that's that's more of a cognitive and sort of rational process. But, you know, more of a deep yeah. unconscious feeling tends to be sort of Iraq roots. Well, I, I, I also know that my great grandmother came from Egypt. Yeah. So and therefore I also know that my real roots are not, of course, in Malta. I mean, Malta is yeah. just a little island that people accidentally stopped off. So I feel more now as I'm growing older more Arabic than I do European, which is very odd. Uh, and Maltese, of course, is an Arabic language. Malta is closer to the Arabs or was closer to the Arabic states than it was to Mediterranean. Now it's closer to, to Italy and, and whatever. But, and I, again, I struggle when I have to fill in those ethnicity forms. I struggle <laughs> because I am not white, British, I, and so I now tick, oddly enough, Arab other, oh, wow. uh, because I think it, it most closely defines what I feel inside, which is this Arab other ethnicity. Well, you know, the Arab nationals would, you know, would, would very much like that comment from you. <laughs> yes, you <know? laughs> but know, I having... feel more, uh, you know, but it's if when you're forced to, to identify it, yeah. You struggle, don't you? And you really pushed to say, what am I? I would tick Mediterranean, but there isn't an ethnic origin that is Mediterranean. Oh, really? But ah. no, there's none. So, uh, yeah. but it's very odd. So there you are. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, my, my, my ancestry go back to Persia. So, yes. I mean, I feel that I'm more Persian than, than Arab. Um, and, you know, I mean logically speaking you know the older the culture the more likely you are to have taken up those um those cultural norms yes. and you know ways of living um so it's interesting and you know eventually we all end up uh, in africa and and you know that's yes. that absolutely yeah. <laughs> <So our> DNA is... <laughs> you know we can't you know we can't go beyond that really um no. so i mean uh, you know, your father was in um, was in Peterborough. What was what was that like? You know, back Peterborough. in Peterborough. Uh... We pronounce it Peterborough. You come <laughs> truly from Peterborough. The, you have... Peterborough well, I spent was... some time in Nottingham. My dad, yes. my dad did his PhD in Nottingham, and you know, we 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 did used to go to Peterborough a few times, and you know, it's a nice it's a nice part of the world. You know, quite you know quite nice <laughs> you, and you and, flatter uh, it. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get some vitriol from this, but I'm not sure it is a nice part of the world. Really? It's very, 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 very flat. Yeah. Uh, it's very windy. Uh, yeah. Peterborough used to have a population of 80,000 when I grew up there. I think right. it's now creeping up for a million if you count. So it's oh, encroached. Wow. It took the London overspill and uh, expanded, 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 and expanded. Uh, and it has a beautiful cathedral and uh and it's close to the as well reasonably close to the norfolk broads uh but i'm forgive me if people are listening to this but i'm not sure east anglia is the nicest of all the british counties nottingham might be nottinghamshire but uh what was it like growing up and we my father went there because he spoke italian oddly enough because there was the brickworks and the brickworks attracted a lot of italians who came from southern italy to 
who were experts at brick, at making bricks. So it had the largest community of Italians in the UK, and there was no doctor to look after them that spoke Italian for mainly for their families, their, their wives, because they, of course, the men picked up English very quickly, but the wives tend to stay at home and, and the grandma and grandpa tend to not to speak English either. So dad was looking for a job and somebody said, well, why don't you go to Peterborough because you speak fluent Italian? So he went to Peterborough and he cared for these Italians. And I mean, again, my earliest memories or some of it was going before anybody had Italian shops. You know, we take it for granted going into these shops and seeing these produce of salamis and panettone and cheese and wine. And this was nothing like wherever the rest of the shops in Peterborough. And it was wonderful. And they used to give us a lot of you know, presents. We had these food and, and I, I loved it. And a lot of my friends uh, were Italian then. And uh, so there you are, we settled in Peterborough, but I did leave when I was 18 and never returned. So I clearly, didn't like it that much to stay. And, and, and did you decide to become a doctor sort of early on, seeing your father you know, doing the work and helping the community and, and, and reaping the rewards with, with lots of Italian with panettone. Yeah, there's lots of panettone. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, the yeah. first, the first, his first surgery was the front room of our house. So if you can imagine the front room where we used to, did we have a television? We must've had a television that was the waiting room for the patients and the dining room was his consulting room so we always used to have to be very quiet on the Saturday because the rest of the days we were at school because the patients would be there and the patients would be in the in the car park though nobody had cars in those days so and the house had all the trappings of of medicine so it had his skeleton so I used to play with the skeleton and and it had uh I mean, often to think about it, but it had the the, the specular and the, the tongue depressors, which I used to draw on and make as little puppets. So, you know, that was my my life. And he used to take me on home visits and I used to sit outside in the car waiting eagerly for him to come out and tell me what, what happened inside. And so he inspired me to be a doctor. I was never going to be anything else ever. And well, once I decided I was going to be a biochemist, but I don't know why, I think I like the biochemistry teacher or the chemistry teacher, but it was, I was always going to do medicine. And, and was it, um, because you went to psychiatry before general practice, was that yes. because you didn't want to become a GP or what was? I didn't want, I didn't want to take over my dad's practice. If yeah. the truth yeah. be known, uh, the pressure was on. By this time it expanded, he was running three or four practices across Peterborough and there was a, a, an unspoken expectation that I would return. And I, though it wasn't fully formulated in my head, I wasn't ready to go back to Peterborough. And I then did a surgical house job and in the spaces between working, because you could have spaces then, I would go into the library and I'd sit on the floor and read these green journal which must have been the British Journal of Psychiatry, I don't know, but I used to read about Freud. So I decided I wanted to do psychiatry because I wanted to, to learn about Freud, as one does. So I applied for the Maudsley, which is the most anti, was the most anti-psychotherapeutic <laughs> training institution you could ever have, telling them I wanted to learn about Freud and not schizophrenia, but actually they offered me a rotation there and 
I never looked back. I, I, but I loved general practice. I loved the generalist. Every job I did, every job I did, I enjoyed. Whether it was care of the, the elderly, right through to child psychiatry or forensic psychiatry. So I just thought, listen, I'm a generalist. So I, I left and uh, did the training for general practice, and have never looked back really. Yeah, I mean, you know, studying Freud is great because it's all sex and and sort of. Yes mother problems and and uh, yes. father sexual pro yeah it's great it's great to read that stuff it was great but it, <laughs> it didn't didn't teach me anything i mean yeah. i was more oddly enough i was interested in him as a person and i used to i still am interested in him as a person and still read a lot about freud and uh, less about his analytical uh his, his analytical theories more about how he came to these analytical theories and how he, what we now have in psychoanalysis, he actually, you know, he, he would, he basically had relationships with his patients. He, you know, he had very few boundaries. And so that's a bit that I'm interested around Freud, though I'm interested in the analytical theories as well. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's sort of very, uh, very colorful positions for sure, you know, there were there were there were great characters and and um, they used to experiment a lot, which is really fun to read about. It's a bit difficult experimenting now, you know, in this sort of day and age of even Twitter doesn't let us experiment. No, much. no, but we have to get back to that. I think uh, we have to experiment. But uh, in the end, I've done I've I've combined psychiatry and general practice totally and utterly throughout my career. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm biased, but, you know, I, I think the psychological component of disease is 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 big. Um, yeah. And the psychological component of of what we I mean, Freud wrote a lot about crowds and he didn't quite write about the group mind, but he there's concepts of it. And you see that in Twitter. You see the group mind in Twitter. You see the fact that people believe the same thing. And if you if you are an outlier, how much you suffer. And I've used Freud's, Freud's interpretations in my, not just my clinical work, but in my leadership work, because you also see it in uh, identification of the scapegoat, for example. Why do people choose a scapegoat? What do people in a group, in a team, what role do they play for each other? What role do they play in the team? And through Freud, I... I well not because of Freud, but I started a, a group analytical training. I was introduced to other great thinkers around, mainly around groups, so beyond, uh, and how and that I've taken into my leadership work and seeing how boards work. And if you ever want to read anything, read Beyond's Basic Assumptions, and it explain everything about dysfunctional groups and dysfunctional boards. And and and. Um... Just wanted to ask you about, um, uh, you know, you seem to be interested in the um, uh, people in at the bottom of society, so to speak, you know, at the lowest rung. Yes. Well, where did where did that interest come from? I mean, some of it's serendipity. I started my career, really started it in 1986. And if one thinks about 1986, we were just starting in the HIV AIDS epidemic mm. and it, it was moving from 
men who have sex with men to intravenous drug users. And nobody wanted to touch these people, literally and metaphorically. And I did. I mean, it wasn't that I was a special person. I just did. These were people my age, more or less, dying. And I was doing addiction at the time, and I set up a, a, a barefoot service in a, in a street needle exchange unit. And it, it was just what I needed to do. And ever since then, there has been a need. I mean, there's been a need. I don't know where the need come from. So I, I, but I have looked after some of the most disadvantaged people, the homeless drug users. I ran a service for pregnant drug users, pregnant intravenous drug users, and they're mentally ill doctors, now gamblers. If you ask where did it come from, again, I think it's because people try and pigeonhole me, but I'm not pigeonholed. I grew up uh, in an outwardly very affluent household, but when my parents uh, separated and later divorced, there was no money at all. I mean, for various reasons which I don't want to go into. So here was this outwardly wealthy doctor's daughter living as I did with my mother, where there wasn't money. There wasn't money for clothes. Sometimes there wasn't money for food. I came from a very large family, but was more or less brought up as a singleton because of the split. And so, and then there's various other things around the makeup of my family and my siblings. So it means you, I don't know, you become self-sufficient. You look out for others because you realize that you have to look out for others because that's what you, 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 you know. What, yeah, you find, you know, you found purpose and meaning in, in, yes. in that way of living, essentially. Yes. You know, you know, that's, you know, that's what sort of gave you the sparkle in yourself and in your eyes and um, in your being. Yes, so to speak. So, and it's interesting. I mean, look, drug users get better. There is nothing more satisfying, more satisfying than looking after an intravenous drug user. So they'd come in literally off the street, disheveled, abscesses, sometimes clucking, withdrawing, their life all over the place, relationship in tatters. And within two weeks, you'd be able to transform them. And they're not better, it's a lifelong of, of transformation, but you tell me anything else that you can have that major impact as a GP. It was staggering and I loved it. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we get a similar thing when we take out cataracts, which is which is really um, yeah. yeah. Well, you do you with know, surgical really... procedures, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. but but with but with this, you see, with drug users, every part of their life is being destroyed, yeah. and yeah. you can fix it by being kind, giving appropriate treatment, and by helping and just being there. And you know what? I still get a an email every year from this wonderful patient who's a, an alcoholic and a drug user. Every year he sends me an email telling me his progress and ex explaining how this help that I gave him has allowed him to progress. And that's the joy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and um, I know you're very busy and, you know, I don't want to take too much of your time. So, you know, hopefully we can um, wrap this up soon. Um, I mean, GPs are having a really hard time at the moment. I mean, that's the kind of impression that I get from from the papers and from social media. Oh, yeah, and... I mean, that time we're seen both as the scapegoat and the savior of the NHS. We, the only group that is per basically personally identified, so it's uh, 
GPs not doing this, whereas if something, you know, waiting list in A&E, they don't say A&E consultants not doing this. We, we have a, a system of healthcare in the UK that is built on the wrong premise, which is heavy loading in terms of funding and, and resources at the hospital end and, and minuscule in comparison in the GP end, yet GPs do. Uh, so there's about 130 different specialties and subspecialties in medicine, we we'll call it medicine in you know, the capital M. So about 130, whereas there's only one general practice specialty. So, it, so all of those 130 demand us to do work essentially for them and we just can't do it. And yet within general practice, we also have the breadth of our, of our interaction. So we go from right from people like myself, managing mental illness, care of the homeless, blood, right through to GPs doing urgent care, IT. And so yet we're seen as just one entity. We have only 8% of the NHS budget for vast amount of the work. And even if we were to double our budget now, double it, double our allocation, we'd still only be where we were in around 2006 so that demonstrates so and yet at the same time everybody demands more and more from us so unless the system sorts itself out i really am fearful for my profession and the system is the system we have to move hospital doctors out of hospitals we have to address why we have outpatient departments we have to create intermediate services co-locate uh, staff within uh, polyclinics and call it what they like, uh, big health centres. We have to have standards across the transition. So hospital doctors care for patients, not just in hospital, but out of hospital. So everything needs to change. So, so obviously there's no easy answer to this, but I mean, if you were to have some easy answers or sort of quick there, fixes. There are easy answers. There are there are answers and there some of them are easy. It's I mean, in the elevator speech, it's very difficult because it's about shifting the incentives uh, away from the incentives of volume of activity in hospitals to actually care of the patient for maybe a year of life. It's, it's changing the regulatory processes so that hospital doctors can work within a primary care setting. Now, they can, but it's quite complicated and that our contract doesn't allow us to count them as activity if they see our patients so it's all complex it's about changing why has that happened you know what's the sort of well, stumbling blocks there oh it's around the performance list it's not historical yeah. because when yeah. i started out in hospital medicine hospital doctors could work in general practice so it's not mm. historical it's mm. it's it's changed it's around changing the regulatory processes of the funding processes so it's it, it is it, it can be done tomorrow where there's a will and you, so if a trust, for example, wanted to set up a, an intermediate service for a complex frailty, now some have, but say for complex frailty, you could do it tomorrow. Once you then start to say, these are our patients within a local community, within, that belong to all of us, including the local authority, forget about how we move the money for the moment, but just say, how do we deliver care for frailty? Do we take, for example, the top 600 frail patients within a local area and provide them with uh, an intermediate service with GP, dietitian, etc., and use the hospital system for those that need inpatient care and, and use the GP for some of the, the, the additional services that are needed? But so it can be done tomorrow. What isn't a problem now, what is a problem is you have a patient you know, who, who is discharged from hospital the tortuous nature of me getting that help if I need it, 
even somebody with, let's say, rheumatoid arthritis, for argument's sake, new diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, that patient is discharged to me as the GP and only seen by the hospital if I then re-refer the patient back, which takes a lot of time and effort. We shouldn't be doing that in the 21st century. That newly diagnosed patient with rheumatoid arthritis should belong to an intermediate service that includes the specialist, the generalist, in order to manage that patient. Once they're stable, they can go back to the GP, but at the moment they start to relapse or something needs more complex, they come back to the intermediate service without the need for a referral letter for all of this nonsense. So the system needs changing fundamentally, but it can happen. It can happen to, and some places are changing it. So locally it's happening and, and you know, if they're more successful locally, then it's more likely to be taken up by well, it, it's, more, it's happened. More if areas. you read people listening to this one to read Teams Without Walls, read in, written in 2008, we had more of the past, more of the future 15 years ago than mm. we have now. So we had intermediate services. We had shared proper shared care, not shifted care. We had co-located services. We had uh, services that, that spanned inside and outside hospital. We had uh, intermediate hospitals, low threshold hospitals where you could admit people for a day or two days just because they were off their feet. So we had all of this. We've just taken our eye off it and built up such divisions between primary and secondary care. And again, on Twitter, people say, I don't like doctors. It's hospital doctors, nonsense. It's the system that needs to change. We have a system that was set up after the Great Plague and it hasn't really changed since. Um, I mean, I, I'd like to finish on a positive. Um, mm. um, could, could we sort of finish on that? And could you give us some some positives about? Well, it's all positive, really. I mean, <laughs> what I've been well, what I've been talking about is positive. There are real yeah. changes happening in in the system now. There's a real yeah. commitment to change, mainly because we're entering, you know, austerity and and no further funding, or presumably not much more funding for the NHS. So we are seeing, and the good people who work in the system, hospital doctors, GPs, hospital nurses community managers want to find a way through this so we it is positive it's very very positive we also have a commitment to address the well-being of staff and we have a commitment to look at reducing inequalities so i am positive very very positive for the future so i mean it, you know there's a lot of work that needs to be done uh, there's lots of hard work in front of us mm. but the resolve is there and the energy is there and yes um, absolutely you know the brain power is there as well fabulous well, thank you. Thank you. For thank you. No, I mean, th th thank you so but, much. Uh, I